Welcome to the New England Take on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM Concord, 101.9 FM Manchester, NHTalkRadio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Be sure to check out NHTalkRadio.com to get all the back episodes of the show. And now follow New England Take on Facebook and Twitter to get our live streams when we do our recording sessions. They should pop up scheduled on the Facebook side of things. And I'm also uh, streaming this on uh, WKXL's YouTube channel, so be sure to subscribe over there. Uh, excited to be joined today by Professor Kirk Dorsey. He's the History Department Chair over at the University of New Hampshire. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you, AJ? Very good. Uh, we kind of briefly talked about it before we went live. It seems like uh, professors tend to come on the air when uh, things aren't going so great in certain parts of the world, especially when you you know foreign policy history. So uh, I wanted to have someone that could come on the show to talk about the situation in Eastern Europe from a historical and ethnic perspective. I, I feel like it's it's not really covered in the traditional K through 12 education enough where people really understand what's going on. We kind of hear the memes in the internet world of the craziness that goes on in that part, in that part of the world because their economies just got shuttered after the fall of the Soviet union. uh, And it it caused a real messy situation. I mean, when you look at what's going on with Ukraine right now, are you very surprised to see it except for the craziness that Putin is so aggressive with it? Well, you know, I'm surprised. The typical historian answer, yes and no. So yeah. uh, yes, I'm surprised only in that um, since World War II, really for 75 years now, there has been a consensus in Europe that boundaries are not changed by force. Countries can choose to break up like Czechoslovakia, but there's been a general agreement that it's not okay to use force to shift somebody else's borders for them. Um, so to see the Russians take Crimea in, in 2014 and basically get away with it. Yeah, that uh, was totally forgotten by everyone. That was a big deal back when Obama was president. Yeah, it was a very big deal. And, um, you know, and it's not accidental that there was a large Russian force that came out of Crimea in this latest war. And the justification, this is why uh, I'm not surprised, is that the justification for annexing Crimea and the two small areas that we generally call like the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, is that they are populated largely by people of Russian ancestry. And, you know, we really saw this in the collapse of Yugoslavia in 1991. The idea that people have national identity and that that should be the basis for the boundaries of a country doesn't work in a place like Yugoslavia, where the Serbs, the Croats and the Bosnians, uh, to a lesser extent, the Slovenes were all like on top of each other. And, you know, the classic example being Sarajevo, which had multiple ethnicities in it. Well, whose city is it if we're going to define a nation based on the dominant people? So mm-hmm. Yugoslavia and its collapse gave us the uh, common understanding of the term ethnic cleansing, which, you know, no, another term for genocide, basically. And so at some level, what's going on between Russia and Ukraine is the Russians saying, you would not recognize that these portions of Ukraine really should have been Russian and because of the people who live there. And since you wouldn't agree to it, you know, we are going to basically force you to accept that. Now, I think that's what Putin was thinking early in this campaign. And when the rest of the world said that's not acceptable, I think he found himself in a difficult position of his own doing and doubled down on I'm just going to force Ukraine to do what I want it to do. So it's kind of ironic because on one hand, it's we're defending the Russians who are in your country. But now they're also saying, but your country is like basically our country because Russians and Ukrainians really aren't that different. 
there's a lack of consistency in Vladimir Putin's thinking and his rhetoric right now. And isn't a lot of the lack of using um, using armed forces to change borders over the last geez, uh, 75 years or whatever it is, is that basically entirely around the, the fact we now have nuclear arms in play in this situation? It's a combination of that, but also a post-war acknowledgement that that changing borders by force was the old way of diplomacy, and that's not acceptable. So, for instance, one of the great moments in post-World War II European diplomacy came when the two halves of Germany reunited at the, after the end of the Cold War. And one of the things that the new united Germany said very publicly was that it accepted the boundary with Poland. And that was controversial because Germany had been forced to accept the boundary of Poland in 1945. It had never been consulted. There were a lot of Germans who were kicked out of Poland uh, and forced into Germany after 1945. And it was imperative for peace in Europe for the Germans to say publicly, we accept that these are the boundaries and they will not be changed by force. And we won't even ask Poland to change them. So, you know, part of it, I think, was the threat of nuclear war. But the other part was just an acceptance that this is not how things can be changed anymore. There's an old system and now there's uh, and there's a new system. And you may have seen the uh, speech by the Kenyan ambassador to the UN, uh, Martin Kamani, who is a UNH philosophy grad, I just learned, talking about how even in Africa, where the boundaries are just completely random, that we have accepted that we don't change boundaries by force because that just leads to constant war and there's a better way to do things. From a from a nationalism perspective, I mean, I mean, how when you look at Eastern Europe, I mean, how many is are all these countries just a mess when it comes to how people identify themselves? Is it um, like we talk about some aspects, some portions, some territories within Ru of Ukraine specifically blatantly identify like I'm Russian, like I view myself as Russian. Ukraine is kind of secondhand, like this is where I just exist. Is that basically a all over the place and just uh, a mess caused by the fall of the USSR? Um, it's a it's a combination. Like the I spent a semester in Hungary in 2011 and got firsthand knowledge how Hungarians are still mad about the treaty at the end of World War One, <laughs> split up the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And and just uh, today or yesterday, I saw this uh, map based on a Pew survey, asking, "Do you think that there's part of your nation that should be in your boundaries but isn't?" And something like 60% of Hungarians said yes. But what was remarkable is that like a third of Germans and a third of Frenchmen and a third of maybe it was a quarter of Britons, there were people all over Europe, you know, sizable numbers, more than just like random statistical error, who thought that there were people living in other countries who should be in their country. Hmm. Now, I think Hungary and uh, I think Hungary is one of the few where it's over 50 percent. But, yeah, there's the, the problem is, you know, for centuries, people who identify as Hungarian or Romanian or whatever moved to other places looking for opportunity, and they never lost their identity as Hungarians. They probably still have the same religious beliefs or naming systems. And also, frankly, if you're a Hungarian in Romania, you identify as Hungarian because that the Romanians are identifying you that way, so you stick together, right? And so then you look to the government in Budapest for protection, and that creates constant tension. And that was not done by the Soviet Union. That was done by Woodrow Wilson in 1919. Not trying to create problems, but he did. Um, so it's it's the Soviet Union was a big part of it, but it is it's just human nature and the way people move around that everywhere you go, you're going to find pockets of people who identify as much with a second nationality as 
with their home nationality. I mean, even if you go to Canada, there are a lot of people who think of themselves as Quebecois first yeah. and Canadian second. So it's not just an Eastern European or a Soviet. It, it seems to be more pronounced, at least when you when you look at Europe and uh, especially when you, when you contrast it with the United States, where there, there's much more of a you integrate with the cultural melting pot where we yeah you 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 may be of chinese heritage and live in chinatown or something like that and you have your community but if, if things go down against the united states you you support the united states when it comes to it i mean am i wrong in that observation yeah i think that's i think that's true i mean some of the classic examples from world war ii the navajo code talkers right who yeah. if anybody had reason not to fight for the united states <laughs> Uh, it would be the and that was recent memory for them. Yeah, 1945 was 1941. It wasn't that long ago. And so um, you're right. I think that there is more of an of a identification in the United States. There, there's less of a I am I am a some some other nationality. But you know there were in World War One, for instance, big campaigns against hyphenated Americans. Theodore Roosevelt, yeah. you know, like you can't be a hyphenated, you can't be an Italian American. You're an American, and. Um, and I think that's partially because the people in the United States, by and large, obviously there are big exceptions, chose to come here or their ancestors chose to come here and they could freely go back if they wanted. In fact, we know in the late 19th century when there were these waves of people coming from Europe, a third of them went home. Um, the same thing with a lot of immigrants from China. So, you know, there were a lot of people who came here not to be Americans and went back. The people who stayed, you know, this is a big generalization, generally came to be Americans and wanted to be accepted um, as Americans, and therefore would often do things to prove that they were true Americans. Looking at Europe with the European Union impact, I mean, and it seems at least as an American hearing the media coverage and such, and especially in the in light of Brexit, there is much more of an image of Europe being a cohesive um, social structure to a certain extent. Um, does that go in conflict with what's going on in Eastern Europe, where it, it makes it hard for them to ultimately want to join the European Union from a sociological perspective? I don't think so, because, I th you know, um, this was back, I think, in the 1990s when the Schengen zone came in. And mm -hmm. the idea that everybody within that zone could move freely among countries. And so people from uh, Hungary, we knew, had gone off to Britain to get work there. And while they still thought of themselves as Hungarians, they they also were beginning to think of themselves as Europeans. And I and I we should remind ourselves that early in the history of the United States, when we were forming, in effect, our own Schengen zone or European Union, people had loyalty to their states over their nations. Robert E. Lee is a classic example, right? You know, I'm, I'm with Virginia before I'm with the United States. Uh, and he was certainly not alone. Um, and I think, you know, the European Union is a big and complex organization you know, Turkey's been trying to get into the European Union forever, and the vast majority of it is not in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, but the, the goal of being in is as much economic as it is social, right? You want to have access to trade with all the other powers, and you want to have the ability to have your citizens move freely back and forth. So, you know, Ukraine came very close to joining the European Union, and it just, in fact, re-upped its uh, application. Um, because there are economic and cultural benefits. And so the tricky part of the European Union is to try to figure out how to maintain your national identity and all the good things about your culture while gaining the benefits of being united with countries from Denmark to Portugal to you know Slovenia, and, and they all have different cultures and want to protect those. I think the European Union, by and large, has done a good job protecting that. Um, 
but it's a really difficult task. And, you know, I think Russia, as much as anything, or Putin, at least as much as anything, is worried about the ways in which the European Union was integrating. <clears throat> and if it pulled in Ukraine, then it would be right up on his borders. And it would just be an example of what Europe could be that he couldn't tolerate. Um, he didn't want Ukraine to be elevated to the level of Europe. And then meanwhile, he's watching Belarus get poorer and poorer. And it's anybody in Russia who can watch the news other than RT television will see like the European model is a lot better than the Belarusian model. And, and I think that's what really worried him. I want to leave enough time here to kind of dive into the ethnic situation that is that part of the world. It's as Americans, we look at our American news coverage. We tend to think of ethnicity associated with skin color and such is, is the big thing. It's the obvious thing. We have so many people of African-American heritage that were forced to be in this country. We have a lot of Asians that that migrated uh, as as we developed our country up through the 1800s and early 1900s. And when you when you look at Eastern Europe, they, they may all mostly look kind of the same to us Americans, but there's different tribes and peoples when when you look at this this part of the world. I mean, how much does this play into the messy nature that are these governments? Um, <clears throat> I think it plays a role and different countries work, different governments try mm -hmm. to take advantage of that. So, again, to come back to Hungary, Viktor Orban has really made uh, a clear attempt to identify a Hungarian nationality that has been oppressed. So for instance, if you're a Hungarian living in another country like Romania, you have the right to vote in the election. But if you're a Hungarian who decided to go to Britain for work, um, then you have to register and do something special. So if you left mm -hmm. the country on your own, um, then he's not so interested in your vote. But if you're oppressed in Romania, at least as he sees it, then he's, he's going to tap that national sense. And I think right now in Ukraine, you know, what's really seems to be, okay, first of all, we have to be careful about what's going on in Ukraine because the yeah. news is coming out, you know. Constantly. Well, it's constantly coming out. And also, you know, the Ukrainian government is trying really hard to send a message. And the Russian government has been very quiet about its message other than just the ridiculous, like, neo-Nazi stuff. Oh, yeah, that's been slowly, yeah, pay very good attention to the things that you're slowly starting to hear from the Russian soldiers as they get captured and such because yeah. they all have different ideas of why the hell they were put in this country. Yeah. So, you know, and it, it looks like, and we've seen a lot of these videos of the Russian soldiers that they're saying, well, we thought we were going as, as you know, that we were going to be welcome because it's just, you know, we didn't know we were going into Ukraine. And then we told us we were going to be welcome and we're just coming to help them. Um, so at one level, I think that the, to come back to a point I made earlier, the Russian government is sort of saying, eh, there's no ethnic difference between Russians and Ukrainians that we, they've, they've been misled by their leadership and they want us in there to help them. And yet at the same time, Ukrainians are, it seems like more than ever identifying as Ukrainian and not Russian. Um, and what seems to be the case, and again, I wanna caution that this, that you know, we're seeing this in real time and only part of the story, is that it seems to be that even the Russian speakers in Ukraine are really angry with what's, what the Russians are doing right. and are finding themselves more loyal to the idea of Ukraine. And I, and I wanna emphasize that before 1991, there, there had only briefly been an independent Ukraine. One of uh, the um, a wife of an ex-colleague who was deceased was telling me that her family was from Ukraine, but they, when they got to America, they thought of themselves as Russian at first, even though her mom was from Kiev. But she never really thought of herself as a Ukrainian until much later in life. But they were just sort of like 
larger Russia. So Ukraine as a national identity has been has had some ups and downs over the thousand plus years that there's been a Ukrainian national identity. And so right now, ironically, the Russians are making a much stronger Ukrainian national identity. So if in they way, are, yeah, they're reinforcing this Ukrainian ethnic identity that was clearly not what they wanted to do. Um, yeah. I think Putin wanted the exact opposite. And, you know, as I always tell my students, this is why it's always smart to avoid war because you're rolling the dice. You, no matter how strong you think your military is, things go wrong. And yeah. I'm sure that Putin, it didn't even occur to him that the Ukrainians would say, wait a minute, you're not our brothers, you're our invaders. And whatever sympathy we had on January 1st is gone. Um, so, yeah, and Zelensky is now seen as an international hero. This guy, this this guy was a comedian just a couple of years ago. It's it's just bananas to think about the the rise of this man and the image he's able to put out there. I mean, once again, beware. There's a lot of propaganda out there, like the ghost of uh, ghost of Kiev or whatever the airplane was ended up not being real. For example, like, there's all sorts of weird things out there, but. But these are hard, hardened people that will stand up against Russia. I mean, could you imagine some of the some of the uh, the East, the Western Europe, European countries, and America and such if something like this would be happening? Like, I couldn't fathom how our country would come together like this. It's crazy what's happened there. Yeah, you know, and it's it's funny. I heard somebody, one of the conservative politicians the other day, said that if Russia invaded France, it would fold up. It's like, well. Yes, the French army got beaten, but let's not forget the French resistance. Yeah, there were four years against the Gestapo in a, you know, you get caught in your dead scenario. And a lot of Frenchmen, also a lot of Frenchmen collaborated. But, you know, some of the tales of heroism that came out of occupied France, occupied Belgium, you know, uh, there are some people who risked everything. Well, you forget everyone forgets about the, the, the French Revolution and how it never stopped because they just kept beating the crap out of each other for generations. Yeah, there was 20 years by the time from the, when it started to win Napoleon, uh, 23 before Napoleon was finally sent packing and they brought the old government back. And talk about a hard man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think Zelensky is a fascinating story. It's a combination of things. First of all, what's happened in Ukraine has surprised a lot of people. You know, this last week. Ukrainian government has been resilient. The Ukrainian people have been resilient. You know, we've heard plenty of interviews with people saying, you know, I didn't support him before, but I, you know, in Ukraine, but I really like what he's done. Um, you know, but we have to be careful. You know, three weeks ago, he was chiding the United States for creating hysteria by saying an invasion was imminent. And well, he, he was wrong. You know, he was wrong about that. And he can have a great week, but, you know, um, He's, there's going to be a longer stretch. So I applaud everything he's done. I, I can't imagine the courage it takes for him to do what he's doing. Um, but at the same time, he's going to have a long, it's going to be a long struggle with Russia. And people need to remember he's human. He's going to make mistakes. He's made mistakes. Um, but yes, it's, it's still a remarkable story. And he has become the rallying point for Ukrainian nationalism. So I hope that he can maintain those standards. You know, one of my grad students likes to say we shouldn't build statues to anybody because everybody, you can find their flaws. And, uh, and so I, I get his point that um, we should be careful about building Zelensky up. But boy, it's, it's kind of a feel-good story. Uh, you know, the David and Goliath story, we don't root for Goliath. So. Professor Kirk Dorsey, uh, History Department Chair over at the University of New Hampshire. Go to unh.edu to learn more about the university. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to New England Take and WKXL.
Welcome back to the New England Take on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM Concord, 101.9 FM Manchester, nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, A.J. Kierstead. I'm uh, going to briefly continue my conversation here with Professor Kirk Dorsey, History Department Chair at the University of New Hampshire, unh.edu, to learn more about the university. So this seems like a great case study of why people should be interested in history. <laughs> it, it, like, um, it, What's it like teaching right now while all these things are going on the last uh, – even beyond Ukraine, like what's going on with the world pandemic? The pandemic and you know, uh, two weeks ago, our big worry was the negotiations with Iran about its nuclear program. Um, I First of all, I agree with you completely. The study of history is very valuable in the sense that no, like having some sense for how to deal with a dictator and to, to think carefully about I, when I hear uh, pundits say, well, we should declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine. It's like, Russia has nuclear weapons, and the first jet we shoot down with the Russian insignia on it, it could, it could be open season for a nuclear war. So we need to think carefully about that. You can learn these things in political science, too. My, my colleagues on the third floor of this building will want to make sure that that happens, too. And it's true. You know, uh, Monday's class, we were supposed to be talking about the um, Cold War, but we spent the entire hour. I'm teaching 20th century U.S. foreign policy. Uh, spent the entire hour just talking about Ukraine, the students had lots of questions and lots of ideas and, and how do we think about this? And it's just remarkable. Um, about two weeks ago, we were talking about the run up to World War II, the US-Japanese uh, tension and how the US diplomats were saying to each other, well, we don't really wanna to go to war with Japan, but we wanna stop Japan from doing what it's doing. And that's and I said at the time, we're having the same discussions yeah. in our department now. We don't want to go to war with Russia. How do we stop Russia from doing what it's doing? Um, so these problems are with us. They, I, I think Mark Twain is alleged to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, you can learn something by looking at how people have handled the crises. Um, but most importantly, just to think about, okay, so what are all the issues about, not to think simplistically about these complex issues. So give the minute and a half elevator pitch for why you think uh, people should go and study history when it comes to post-graduation actually having a job. Oh, well, in terms of having a job, you know, one of the things we know is that liberal arts majors generally uh, do very well, both financially and in terms of job happiness, um, being able to relate to other people and being able to understand where they're coming from is far more valuable than any skill you'll pick up. Uh, I mean, maybe if you want to be an accountant, you should study accounting. I will admit we will not teach you how to do accounting. But if you want to go into and make a business deal with somebody and you need to understand that person and maybe that person's past and where he or she came from, then having a history background and being able to process lots of information to understand how people think, how they might think under stress, how they might react under stress, that's, those are invaluable skills. And again, well, I think history is very important. I think English and political science and other majors, philosophy will also help you get those skills. So uh, I'd like to particularly talk to the 17-year-olds and their parents who think they need to go to business school. Nothing wrong with the business school, but if you want to be successful in business, actually liberal arts majors do really well in business too. Yeah, it's really important to understand understand the world through different different lenses. Like, I'm a huge fan of like Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, the Revolutions mm -hmm. podcast with Tim Duncan. I listen to those all the time because it, it's you really see how it plays out in, on on the modern world stage. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so Professor Kirk Dorsey, History Department Chair over at the University of New Hampshire. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you very much, AJ, for the invitation.
All right, you're listening to the New England Take in WKXL, 1450 AM. Thanks so much for joining me. Definitely, once again, be sure to check out New England Take on Facebook and Twitter to get the live stream versions of the show. And nhtalkradio.com, we got the podcast links. going to be posting the videos there and everything. And it's really exciting to kind of start going into these other platforms in a new way. So please be sure to like and subscribe. It, it really helps uh, me continue to have this going. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. This has been the New England Take.